Today's reading is from Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I say, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge? or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted No sooner are they sown 
No sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, they will walk and not be faint. Well, thanks, Anita, and good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here at Tonsley, uh, part-time. And after spending much of the first half of the year at uh, Kernelite Gardens and some of our other network churches, I'm really looking forward to spending uh, pretty much all of Term 3 with you here at Tonsley. And I was just thinking before, I kind of consider it kind of in equal measure a blessing to look out and see so many faces uh, of people that I haven't uh, had the opportunity to meet yet, as well as some very dear brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, friends who uh, we've forged such a deep, deep relationship in serving our Lord and God together. If you are new with us here at Trinity Church Tonsley, uh, today or in recent weeks, uh, one thing I hope that you come to appreciate about us is that we're pretty captivated by the grace of God shown to us in Jesus here as a church. If you're checking out Jesus for the first time or thinking about church and Jesus for the first time in a while, followers of Jesus use the word grace to describe the giving of an undeserved gift, getting something great that you haven't earned. And the other term that kind of goes hand in hand with them, and they're often kind of conflated together, is the Christian term mercy, where mercy involves not getting something bad, a punishment, say, that you have deserved. So when a Christian says we're captivated by the grace and mercy of God, it's because they understand and deeply love the fact that while we deserve God's wrath against our sin, through Jesus' work on the cross, taking the penalty of sin upon His shoulders so that we bear it no more, we've been shown mercy. We don't get something bad that we deserve. And more than that, by God's grace, we're getting something really great, a place in God's family now and in eternity, a free and loving relationship with God again, freedom from fear and death and a whole lot more that's all entirely undeserved. That, in a nutshell, is the good news, the gospel, as Christians call it, the great news we're called to share to the world, that the grace and mercy of God is available to all through Jesus. 
So for brevity's sake, and so I don't sound like I've got a theological stutter, I'll refer to all of that simply as the grace of God, as many do. So at Trinity Church Tonsley, we're pretty captivated by the grace of God. As our senior network pastor Paul Harrington said in a recent sermon, it's our main goal as the Trinity Network to help people grasp and be bowled over by the grace of God and actually never really recover from it. I walked into a Trinity Church in 1999 as a fairly new Christian and for 24 years now I've benefited richly from this ministry of God's grace. I'm passionate about it, I consider myself a fairly good student of God's grace. Yet on Friday, in my daily devotion book, by a guy called Paul Tripp, a question was posed to me about God's grace that really stumped me for a little while, and this was the question. You can pop it up on screen, Eleanor, that'd be great. If someone were to ask you, what is the ultimate final goal of God's grace, what the ultimate final goal of God's grace is, what would you answer? If someone were to ask you what's the ultimate final goal of God's grace, what would you answer? Now, Tripp, in his daily devotional, listed off a beautiful and compelling list of some of the many things God's grace can accomplish in our lives. God's grace, for example, can make us more thankful and better stewards of what we've been given. God's grace can assist us to communicate in a way with others that's less selfish and more loving. God's grace can make you a better citizen and neighbour. God's grace can cause you to be more responsible with the use of your body and more sexually pure. God's grace can make you less anxious and more courageous. God's grace can pilot you through disappointment and give you joy even when you're suffering. And this list kind of continued on uh, for some time, yet Tripp concluded this, uh, up on screen again, thanks, Eleanor. All of these things are a beautiful harvest of grace, all of these things uh, for which we should be eternally thankful. But none of these good gifts is the ultimate goal of God's grace. We're starting today a nine-week series in the second half of the book of Isaiah, covering chapters 40 to 66, uh, at Trinity Church Kernelite Gardens, where the majority of our launch team came from. We looked at the first 39 chapters last year, and it's available on their website. But it's this next section of Isaiah that I think gives us one of the clearest kind of standing-on-the-mountain-range, big-picture views of the grace of God and its ultimate purpose. More than that, how this grace was planned and foretold, the deepest issues God's grace addresses, how it was achieved through Jesus, and how we're called to live in response to God's grace today. So it'd be great to have Isaiah 40 open in front of you on your devices or page 1079 of the Bibles on the seats as we try and draw out from it the ultimate goal of God's grace that's laid out in the book of Isaiah for us. As you turn there, let me give you a quick orientation on where we are in Isaiah. As a church, you've recently finished off uh, a series in the book of 1 Kings, and Isaiah's ministry picks up uh, just a little further on in the downward spiral from the high point of Solomon's kingship. 
as the nation heads towards exile in Babylon. Yet in the previous chapter of Isaiah, uh, in the previous chapters, chapters 36 to 39, the main kind of foe in view has been Assyria. God hears King Hezekiah's prayer and an angel of the Lord strikes down 185,000 soldiers sort of encircling and uh, laying siege on Jerusalem. Victory is granted to the people of God miraculously. Yet as we left Hezekiah after his mysterious illness and recovery, Babylon now sends envoys to him. Isaiah questions the king about what transpired when they were together and then prophesies that days are coming, yet far off, that the wealth and the people of uh, the wealth and people of God will be carried off to exile in Babylon, and it kind of closes this extraordinary section of this great display of God's power to save, as illustrated by the Assyrian defeat, with this kind of sour note of pending doom, leaving us the kind of question, will this cycle ever end? Where God blesses His people, they uh, then experience His blessing, and as time goes on, they forget Him and are fooled into worshipping other things. God then brings judgment and calamity. The people turn back to God, they call on Him and He saves them, bringing blessing to them, before they gradually start to forget Him again, start worshipping other things. And this cycle just continues on through the Old Testament. When I first became a Christian and bought a Bible and started reading it, by the time I read through the whole Old Testament, that was the first thing that struck me, just this cycle just keeps going and going. Something needs to change. And indeed, if something is going to change, God only not needs to save them kind of geopolitically from this rising foe of Babylon. What becomes apparent is He really needs to save them from themselves, from His people's hearts kind of gravitational pull to worshipping everything but Him. So as we turn to chapter 40 now, which we just heard read, we kind of skip forward from this kind of damning prophecy during Hezekiah's raid to a kind of a yet unspecified time where God sort of declares that He's going to address this kind of problem beneath all other problems. And for the first generation who heard Isaiah's prophecies, it was preparing them for this coming exile to Babylon so that they might understand this devastating turn of events aright. And for the generations shortly after who read it in exile, it sought to bring them comfort and hope that God had not forgotten them. And as we shall see over the next nine weeks, it speaks powerfully about the ultimate purpose of God's grace to every generation since. We will apply this to us today each and every week, yet it's really important to always first understand something like Isaiah from the perspective of the first hearers of it, that we might understand its context first so we can rightly apply it to us today. So as we begin in in chapter 40, verse 1, imagine reading this for the first time, knowing that a huge geopolitical power is coming to destroy the nation, kill many and and carry off many to exile. Or perhaps as the generation after, living in a foreign land, hearing the stories from your elders about what life was like back in Jerusalem in better times, before the dark years came. Wondering 
if God had forgotten or forsaken you. Try and take yourself there in your heart and then hear these words from verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This time of exile is going to come to an end. God's disciplining punishment will be complete and he'll lead his people on home, says Isaiah. Isaiah's words in that context, if you can you know, scarcely begin to imagine it, would have been like a new dawn, burning, bringing light and warmth to a cold and demoralised community in Babylon. There's a beautiful picture painted in verses 3 and 4 of a kind of a desert highway being made straight and level in preparation for God himself to come and reveal his glory. Verse 5, that all will see together. And as much as human life is frail and the generations pass like flowers in the field, verse 6, the word of our God, verse 8, will reveal his, which reveals his character and promises, this word endures forever. Heralds are to stand on a high mountain and in the city squares with a loud voice announcing his arrival. Here is your God, verse 9. Read with me from verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. God is not the kind of God who just sends blessings from afar. Isaiah speaks of a time where God comes in person to bring these blessings himself. Can you imagine the comfort these words would have brought to the fearful and demoralised people of God. And the images used to show God's character and the way He will lead His people in verse 11 kind of just layer this comfort on all the more richly and extravagantly. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart. He gently leads those who have young. These first 11 verses act as an introduction to this magnificent theme of Isaiah that kind of swells into this fully formed picture of a time of universal salvation offered to all by the time we reach Isaiah 55. Those who first came back after exile under King Cyrus' decree would have kind of begun to see and feel that God is keeping these promises. Yet as Christians, we live in a time where we look back and see Jesus himself and the New Testament authors showing us that Isaiah's words were ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. As John the Baptist appears centuries later, identified for us as that very voice of the one calling in the wilderness, calling people back to God in repentance, making straight this pathway for the Lord to come who, of course, does indeed come, Jesus, fully man, fully God, to fulfil the words of Isaiah, as we'll see in coming weeks, bringing the grace of God with him. Yet, from this kind of lofty vision, 
Isaiah takes an unexpected turn. So often with the prophets, even when they had lofty and beautiful messages of God to convey, like these first 11 verses, the people of God are often less convinced about what they hear and their hearts respond with doubts and with fears. Now, I don't think we should sit here today and kind of look back with a spiritual snobbery on those first generations who heard Isaiah's words, thinking that surely if we were there, we would have been models of faith and obedience. Ask yourself, try and put yourself there. If you were there in Babylon, you'd seen the holy city Jerusalem destroyed, many of the people that you know and love killed, You've been carried off into exile by a far bigger and more powerful empire who openly mocked your trust in God and in His ways. Do you think you would have a strong and robust faith at that point? Hearts who just naturally trust in God and His promises. Would you live with such a, a strong resolve that your belief worked it out uh, worked itself out in a life full of kind of daily trust and obedience to God's Word, despite the mocking ridicule of those who lived around you with power, riches and the easy confidence of the intellectual elite. In Isaiah's day, he had some faith-building work to do in the hearts of God's people to kind of firm up their trust in the Lord so that they had the confidence to live lives of resolve, obeying the word of the Lord despite some pretty hefty opposition. I was watching a movie the other day that got me thinking about the, the challenges of living in days as dark as Isaiah's first hearers. Uh, my son Jack wanted to watch the war movie, Dunkirk. Uh, it's a great movie and I said yes but I said, on the condition that you watch with me first, The Darkest Hour, which is uh, another movie uh, that sort of focuses in on this great moment in history. The Darkest Hour focuses in on Winston Churchill during his key first few weeks as Prime Minister during World War II, kind of at the time where the Nazis are at the peak of their power. Western Europe is falling at an increasingly rapid pace and the Nazis kind of have momentum now. And the British Army's 300,000 men are trapped in Dunkirk on the west coast of France. With the Germans' air superiority, it looks as if all hope is lost and Churchill is being urged to kind of bargain away their freedom with the Nazis to save their army. There's some great winter viewing there if uh, you haven't seen either of these two movies. Dunkirk, from the soldier's perspective or The Darkest Hour from the political perspective in Britain. You can tell I've uh, spent a few weeks watching movies uh, in COVID isolation. But it transports you back to a time not so long ago, times as desperate as those that Isaiah's found themselves in. And one of the quotes from The Darkest Hour that stuck with me was the one where someone asks Churchill about his parents. And in the movie, at least... Churchill responds and said, my father was like God, busy elsewhere. Displaying kind of a, a real contempt and a disbelief in God. 
When circumstances are their darkest and the world seems it's most out of control, it is perhaps the easiest to mock God and those who trust in Him. I kind of feel for very different reasons that we're living in a moment, at least in my short life, where the world feels more out of control than usual. One in a hundred year floods, it seems, every second year. War has returned to Western Europe. Food shortages, inflation, talk of global recession, cost of living concerns, global poverty has kind of receded from the public's eyes, we become a little bit more worried about ourselves, yet it rages on across the globe, stripping people of their humanity. Day by day we hear stories, some quite close to home, really sad battles, lost of people with mental health. And amidst this all, we're living through a time where in the public sphere, anyone who takes a stand for God in the media, in the workplace, on the sporting field, in the office, at school, is kind of summarily executed on social media. If you share however lovingly, that there is a creator God behind our world. If you articulate a different view on sexuality and gender, however compassionately and humbly you might say it. If out of love you sacrifice your social standing with many by sharing that there is only one mediator between God and man, only one path to salvation through Christ alone. Where is your God? Busy elsewhere is the mocking tone of our age. Isaiah lived in such times and had faith-building work to do. And that faith-building work, as we'll see over the next nine weeks, is just as timely amongst God's people today. After painting such a beautiful picture of God coming to his people down a highway made straight, heralded from the mountaintops and the city streets, bringing comfort, bringing blessing, personally entering our world with the power and might to save and the gentleness of love leading his flock, holding them close to his heart, Isaiah then moves to answer the fearful and doubting questions coming from the hearts of the people of God. As Dave and Jackman puts it so well in his excellent little book, Teaching Isaiah, and there's a few copies over there on the welcome table, you can have a flick through, I'd really commend it to you, uh, along with the daily reading guides on your seats. We'll see that Isaiah knows his audience's hearts well enough to know that they're asking, like, I, I hear this great picture Isaiah is painting, but does God really have the power to do this? And if so, does He really have the will? Does He care? God's immense power and wisdom is first declared by Isaiah in response, starting at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance? 
Just this picture of the enormity of God, these tiny little things, the the breadth of a finger, a a scale, and God saying He's weighing up the whole world in such ways. Who can fathom, verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as His counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten Him? And who taught Him the right way? Who has taught Him knowledge or showed Him the path of understanding? Isaiah then doesn't just gently mock, he ridicules those who worship anything less than the one true God, those who fear man, those who are impressed above all else by the power of the world's great nations. In verses 15 to 24, Isaiah says the nations essentially are like a drop in the bucket. The surrounding nations they fear are you know, but mere kindling for God's fire. The things they worship, useless. God stands enthroned above our world. Princes and rulers come to nothing and fade, die and blow away like chaff. In verse 25, Isaiah summarizes it all and says, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. The Babylonians, who were well known for worshipping the stars, and as the people of God in exile languished there, mocked and dispirited, God says through His prophet, verse 26, lift up your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host, one by one, and calls forth each of them by name, because of His great power, and mighty strength, none of them is missing. That were the things we were declaring together today in our first song. Behind our world and all the things that people love in it and worship, behind the majesty and splendor of the universe is the one who made it, says God, through his prophet. You can kind of hear the next question coming then. Well, you know, if he's so powerful then, is he just kind of busy elsewhere and not have the will to help us? Has he forgotten us is the question of the people of God in verse 27, essentially. To which Isaiah replies, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, as we sang in our second song, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint." I'm very thankful Kelly's a bit more clued up than I, so I didn't realise that second uh, song we sung today is pretty much that, put to verse. It's an excellent choice. God is powerful beyond measure and He does care for us immensely is the word of Isaiah to build the faith of His people in pretty dire times. And this chapter really is kind of an overture of where we're going in the rest of Isaiah. Faith building is Isaiah's task for the dispirited people in his time through the exile 
and the return. And faith building it is for us, who can know with great confidence, historically, archaeologically, that Isaiah predicts in advance by, (laughs) um, you know, seven centuries, with astounding accuracy, the arrival of the grace and the mercy of God, as God comes in the flesh, as our Lord Jesus Christ. And with extraordinary detail, Isaiah declares in advance how these blessings will come as Jesus heads to the cross, bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions. What is the ultimate goal of God's grace? What's the ultimate purpose for which God saves us through sending Jesus to the cross? Well, it's actually to reorient our worship away from the created things, our world, our intellect, our relationships, our experiences, back to the loving creator God who made and created them all, as Isaiah has begun to build in us today. It's to strip away all fear of man, our sense that the world's great nations are the most powerful things uh, in our universe that make us feel powerless and to help us realise in God's hand all of these things are like nothing so that we might worship and enjoy the God who loves us who is far more powerful and entirely for all those who place their trust in Him. As Tripp concluded in my daily reading on Friday, when answering his own question, what is the ultimate purpose of God's grace? Let's pop it up on the screen. Thanks for us, Eleanor. I bet you we didn't sync that one, Cam, when we swapped over computers. That's all right. It's not Eleanor's fault. I'll repeat it for you twice. Here's the conclusion that we were building for. You'll just have to listen along. What's the ultimate purpose of God's grace? Well, here is the bottom line, says Tripp. Sin kidnapped our worship and grace works to restore it to its rightful owner, God. It is only when God is in his rightful place in our hearts that everything else is in its appropriate place in our lives and only powerful grace can accomplish this. I'll repeat it for you. Here's the bottom line. Sin kidnapped kidnapped our worship and grace works to restore it to our rightful owner, God. It is only when God is in his rightful place in our hearts that everything else is in its appropriate place in our lives and only powerful grace can accomplish this. In the end, it is only those who hope in the Lord, who will renew their strength, who will not falter, who will endure beyond this life to experience the blessing of being with God for all eternity, who will run and not grow weary, who will walk and not be faint. Do take the daily Bible reading guides. On your seats, we're going to go through all the rest of Isaiah over these eight weeks together. I've just written a few questions there each day to help you really get into the book. 
because Isaiah still has much faith-building work to do among us, the people of God today, so that we might rightly trust, love, worship and obey the one true God, that Trinity Church Tonsley may be increasingly captivated by the grace of God, restoring God to His rightful place in our hearts. Let me close for now in prayer. (laughs) Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for the words of the prophet Isaiah. We thank You that they speak right down through the centuries, uh, that they uh, predict and articulate and explain the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and His need to go to the cross, uh, to die there on the cross as our substitute to be pierced for our transgressions. We thank You that uh, we'll see in Isaiah that Christ looked beyond the cross to uh, a glorious day of eternity with many souls brought to glory as this great news that the grace and mercy of God is available to all through Christ is proclaimed across the world and down through time. Please do a great work in our hearts wherever we're at uh, in this series, either building faith Uh, for the first time in Christ, uh, to restoring or refreshing it if we've been away for some time. And for those who uh, have been persevering and trusting and seeking to obey you from the heart, please strengthen and equip us and uh, build that same confidence and faith that we might uh, have you rightly placed in our hearts today as the centre of our worship that we might uh, live lives of uh, confidence, that the grace of God might yield a beautiful harvest in our lives today and so that uh, we and many others who respond to the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus uh, might be able to look forward to a glorious eternity with you. And it's in Jesus' precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.